0: When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, In the month of Nisan, they cast the poor, that is, the lot, in the presence of Haman, to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, Whose customs are different from those of all other people, and who do not obey the king's laws. Is it not in the king's best interest? It, sorry, it is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, the Hamedadatha, the Agite, son of a Hamedadatha, the Hagite, the enemy of the Jews. And then chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province in which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the Edict of their Annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the golden scepter to him and spare his life. For 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported back to Mordecai, he sent back this answer, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have been come to the, to the royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, "'Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law.' If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Amen, and may God bless his word to us. Thank you, Tom.
1: Uh, The last time I preached here... We looked at Deborah, the prophetess from uh, the book of Judges. Uh, Before the sermon, I was cheeky enough to say to you that I hoped that uh, that sermon and subsequent ones might help us to answer the question that our pagan neighbours seem unable to answer What is a woman? Well, today we look at the courage of Esther. Do keep your Bible open, although we're looking at the whole book, and you will find in your notice sheet a fairly full outline of the important things that I need to say. The last New South Wales soldier to bear the revered title Rat of Tobruk died last week. Mr Ernie Walker was 106 years old. In 1941, among 14,000 other young Australian men, he endured the eight-month siege in Tobruk, North Africa, until the German war machine retreated. Australian humour accepted the Nazi scorn of being like rats in holes and invested it with honour that endures to this day. This week also marks the 80th anniversary of one of the most costly and yet productive commando raids of World War II. Ten British marines paddled flimsy canoes called cockle shells up the Gironde River in the inland port of Bordeaux to sabotage German supply vessels trading through conquered France. Only two Marines survived, but it was estimated that by their efforts, they shortened the war by about six months. On a battlefield, one man fights valiantly and is awarded the Victoria Cross, the highest recognition for bravery. In wartime, on six other battlefields, men fight just as bravely, but their efforts remain unrewarded. Why is that? Well, the first man was in the right place at the right time to be noticed. Dozens of people qualify for a position of leadership in industry, research, or an organisation. One person gets the job, others are bypassed. Why is that? Well, the successful one was in the right place at the right time. Among world leaders of the past century, one man continues to be revered and quoted. Winston Churchill stands out from the rest. His statue, unveiled by no lesser person than the late Queen Mother, stands opposite the Houses of Parliament in London. At the recent spectacular funeral of our late Queen, the statue bore moot testimony to the continuing links of history behind that event. Churchill was not an aristocrat, but he is honoured in the most prominent place in Westminster Abbey. His was the first funeral of a commoner attended by the Queen in 1965. Only Margaret Thatcher received that same honour in the Queen's 70-year reign. Now, why is that? Well, when the dark threat of extinction by Germany hovered over England in 1940. Churchill was the man whom God raised up to lead the nation safely through World War II. Right man, right place, right time. It is universally accepted, even in these post-colonial days, that the reason why Britain still inspires a commonwealth of nations and territories is the 70-year service of Queen Elizabeth II. Right person, right place, right time. Being the right person in the right place at the right time can be very costly personally. Most Victoria Crosses are awarded posthumously to relatives because the men who won them died in action. Esther is a heroine of the Old Testament people of God. She epitomises what it means to be one of God's peculiar people in a generation where men and women try to ignore God and defy his purposes for the world. I notice that wherever the Bible is being taught to children and youth, people will say that the story of Esther is one of the most popular ones that they share. The book of Esther, like the other 65 books of the Bible, is special revelation from God for his people. It provides part of the message to lead his people home to the promised land of heaven. The Babylonians who conquered Israel in 587 BC were later defeated by Persians. They permitted Israelites to return to their home, but many chose to stay in what was then Persia. Esther was among them, an orphan raised in Babylon by her older cousin Mordecai. She stepped into the focus of history about a century after the fall of Jerusalem and in the reign of Xerxes I, king of Persia. Now the question is this, what made Esther the right person for the events recorded here? First of all, from a purely historical point of view, Esther was an attractive young woman, specially chosen for the king's harem. One concubine among many, like one camel or goat in the king's herds. In the ancient world, as is sadly the case in parts of the modern world, as we've been reminded this week, places like Afghanistan, Iran, places untouched by the gospel, women are treated as possessions for men to enjoy. When Queen Vashti would not appear before the king and his drunken guests at a 180-day marathon of food and alcohol, at the Winter Palace, the king was outraged. His advisers were also concerned. They reasoned that if this disobedience went unchecked, women all over the Persian Empire might disobey their husbands. (coughs) Vashti was removed and the search began for a suitable replacement queen. Essentially, the candidate had to be physically attractive, submissive to the king, and only speak when she was spoken to. Very simple job description. Of course, in the plan and purpose of God, Esther was chosen. There she sat in the harem, waiting to be called at the king's pleasure. Some mindless bimbo of the Hollywood mould would be happy with a job description like that. But it must have been very difficult for Esther, a capable, godly woman, seeking to please the Lord rather than brutal, careless leaders like the king of Persia. Secondly, despite this sordid misuse of a young woman in what was exclusively a man's world, The purpose of God for his people was unfolding. We cannot afford ever to focus on the chaos of the moment without reflecting on the plan that God has for us. At the time of Esther's detention at the palace, other forces were at work in the nation. Haman, an ambitious and vicious, the two often go together, politician, was advancing his own cause. Effectively, he ruled the nation. The king left the day-by-day running of the country to this man, and according to chapter 3, verse 1, no one questioned Haman's authority. He also had a hidden agenda. However neglectful the king was about matters of state... He does not appear to have been anti-Semitic, that is a hater of Jewish people. Archaeological evidence suggests that the reason some of the Jews stayed in Persia was because they enjoyed an affluent lifestyle as bankers and traders. A wise ruler would lead them to get on with the business of making the nation rich and stable. The very attitude that comforted the king irritated the minister of state. Haman envied the Jews and had plans to be rid of them. Of course, people like him also expect to become richer by plundering their enemies' goods. It's said that everyone has his or her price and the king was no exception. You heard it read in the lesson there, chapter 3 and verse 8. He gladly received 10,000 talents of silver, generously contributed to the treasury by Haman. Politics hasn't changed much, has it? Haman was given freedom to do whatever he wanted to do to his enemies, the Jews. Haman's hatred for Mordecai, the one man in the kingdom who would not bow to him, festered into a desire for revenge against all Jewish people. He seems to have been an ancient form of Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, or their successors today. What he did not realise was that the new Queen Esther was Mordecai's cousin and effectively adopted daughter. Ignorance of that fact, together with arrogance over his own position and place in the realm, would bring Haman down. Esther is the vital link in God's plan of salvation for his people at this point in history. It's been rightly observed, thirdly, that when God calls us to a task, he equips us for it. Esther was the conduit through whom the king learned of a plot against him. Mordecai informed her, she informed the king, and swift justice dispatched the conspirators. That act of loyalty by Mordecai and Esther to a pagan king was then enshrined in Persian law. You see that in chapter 2, verse 23. It's also true that before need arises, the Lord provides for his people. Haman can do his worst now, but God's chosen ones are in place to save them. The aggressor invents his own demise in the vicious plan he proposes for Mordecai the Jew. Fourthly, Esther demonstrated wisdom and courage. That makes her so fascinating in a sinful world. Asked by Mordecai to intercede with the king regarding Haman's plot to kill them, Esther was cautious. Her mentor reasoned with her in chapter 4 there in verse 14. If you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther was godly and caring, but she was not foolish in her thinking nor rash in her behaviour. She argued that anyone approaching the king without being summoned would be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their life. She added, 30 days had passed since she'd been called to the king. Perhaps he might not recognise her. Real character is displayed most clearly under pressure like this. Haman planned to destroy Esther's family and race. In modern times, especially during the Second World War, names like Christian Dutchwoman Corrie Ten Boom arise. Corrie and her family hid Jews fleeing from persecution by the Germans. She was the only member of her family to survive the concentration camps. If you've not read the book, The Hiding Place, I urge you to get it and read it. If you can't afford it, I'll buy it for you. Anne Frank was a teenage Jewess, hidden with her family by her father's former employees in Amsterdam. Exposed by some foul creature, the Frank family were taken away and exterminated In the German camps. Anne's diary survived by the grace of God and is credited today with being the second most influential Jewish writing in history, apart from the Bible. If you haven't read the diary of Anne Frank, perhaps your education is lacking. Like winners of the Victoria Cross, Anne achieved more in her death than in her life. Right person, right place, right time. Now, the second big question that comes from this passage is, what made the time right for Esther? Well, first of all, Esther planned her move when the need of her people was most obvious. She called them to be as committed as she was. Esther instructed Mordecai in chapter 4 there at verse 16, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When it is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Dedication like that demands attention. If we were awarding Victoria Crosses to Old Testament heroes, Esther would be right up there with the best of them. People who concede the, consider the needs of others as more important than their own needs invariably sacrifice themselves in some way. Esther was willing to give her life for her people. Secondly, Esther gauged the moment when she might avoid the king's anger and provoke Haman's pride. The sensual, drunken ruler delighted in her, offering her up to half his kingdom. Well, drunks offer the world, but all they ever give is pain and destruction. Esther, however, simply requested that the king dine with her Oh, and that he might bring Haman. Some might call it a coincidence, but coincidence is not a description applicable to anything that God does. Under his mighty hand, two incidents conspired to bring down Haman and to raise up Mordecai. On the one hand, Haman's pride drove him to build the tallest gallows upon which to publicly hang Mordecai. On the other hand, God's spirit caused the king to have a sleepless night. He had no television or P3 player, so he did what pagan kings do when they can't sleep. He read the history of his own kingdom. There was irrefutable proof of Mordecai's loyalty. The king had a night of torment tossing and turning and doing what pagan kings do, reading his history. I could not imagine anything worse than reading about myself and my imagined achievements on a sleepless night. God had a greater purpose which evolved from that experience of agony on the part of one ugly man. Not only did Haman fail to murder Mordecai, as he planned to do, he found himself promoting Mordecai by royal decree. You see, Esther was the woman in the spotlight of history at this point. Again she went to the king and again he received her warmly. She asked him to save her life and that of her people. Now, the king was very sensitive about anything to do with his new queen. He was besotted with her. Her tears and obvious distress moved this stony-hearted potentate. He found himself, perhaps for the first time, wanting to approach Esther with tenderness rather than merely lust. He resented the fact that Haman wanted to destroy this beautiful woman and her race. Unfortunately for Haman, he became the wrong man in the wrong place at the wrong time. The king walked in as Haman was pleading with Esther to save his life. Misunderstanding the reason for Haman's nearness to Esther, the king fell into a rage in keeping with his real nature, he acted instantly with brute force and without mercy. And the Bible says in chapter 7 and verse 10 the king's wrath was only pacified when Haman was hanged on the gallows prepared for Mordecai. One further complication, which not even the king could avoid, existed. It was the absolute authority of Persian law. Even the king could not go back on his word as declared. Thankfully, his troubled night revealed a way forward. History revealed Esther and Mordecai's loyalty to the crown. The people of God were still not safe. Esther was the only one who could approach the king. So in chapter 8 from verse 3, we read that she fell down at his feet with tears. That seems to have been a pretty good recipe she was able to use. I won't comment on the difference between what men and women do, but there you are. She pleaded for the reversal of Haman's letter of destruction regarding the Jews. Life goes on, of course, in the pagan world. And needing a new chief minister to attend to the business of government, the king appointed Mordecai to the position. Mordecai's first duty as minister of state was to write new letters permitting his people to arm and defend themselves. It was legal now for them to kill their enemies and plunder their goods. There was a slaughter in Susa. But you'll notice in chapter 9 that the Jews took no plunder. Their action was not revenge, but justice. They saw their deliverance as salvation from God. The annual feast of Purim, commemorated by Jews to this day, sets that before us very clearly, at least annually. I think it falls in May every year. And because of the way it occurred, to this day, Persian Jews refer to themselves as the children of Esther. Thirdly, the time was right because the circumstances were right. Esther did not move in royal society by choice or birth. She was selected as a person might select a horse or some other possession taken for pleasure. So little of what we do is undertaken by our choice. Circumstances hem us in. But it is not circumstances that shape our life. Our response to circumstances does that. Opportunity is something which is offered, not created. What we do with circumstances is what matters in the end. Note Esther's response to her situation. She called for fasting among her people, the Old Testament expression of submission to God. We who are privileged children of the New Testament, of course, simply pray to our Heavenly Father. We know that Jesus the Son sits at the Father's right hand, interceding for us. The contact is personal and powerful. It focuses on his person and his power. Well, brethren, today we have opportunity to learn from God's revelation given through his servant Esther's response to her circumstances so long ago. We must not be distracted and miss the message God has for us this morning. It is no mere coincidence that we are the ones who are here and this is the sermon being proclaimed. Hear what the Lord says to his people. This is the right place and the right time. We who are indwelt by his spirit are the right people to hear his voice, dare to be an Esther at home, at work, at college, in the community. Of course, God may even ask you to go elsewhere in his world. Are you ready to be faithful like Esther there? There was a modern man who, like Job, lost everything, just when he thought things couldn't get any worse, his wife also died. He wandered aimlessly along the street, having nothing else to do, and he saw a stonemason chipping a shapeless block on the ground. Slowly, the symmetry of a building block took shape, and he said to the mason, What are you doing with that? And pointing to the tip of the church, the workman replied, Do you see the little hole in the spire up there? Well, I'm shaping this down here so that it will fit in up there. Well, the man's eyes filled with tears as he walked away. It was as if God had spoken personally to him. The circumstances which are overwhelming you so completely and may even destroy you are such that I have a greater purpose for you in the end. Put your trust in me. Respond in faith and act in goodwill. I will shape you for my glory so that in any situation you may be the right person at the right time in my world. Brethren, I have to ask, does your faith in the risen Lord Jesus make you free of circumstances like that? If not, you may need to go a little further in faith. To be able to say with Esther, at any crisis point, if I perish, I perish. God knows what he's doing with me. Life is possible and bearable when we have our focus on God and his plan rather than on the image we see in a mirror and the hopes we have for this little life. These are mighty and challenging things, so I'm going to ask you to join me now in a moment of quietness As the Spirit of God makes his application to each of our hearts. And after that, I will pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your love is so great that there are no circumstances which can cut us off from you. You have decreed through your sovereign Son, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We thank you that you understand the pressures we're under. You know what it is that slows us down and weighs us down and troubles us whenever we make a decision. We thank you that you know all that. But we thank you too that in the unfolding of history, which is just your story, you've already made provision for our need at this time. Please drive away from us the lies of Satan, which are perpetrated constantly in our media, and sadly in the customs and cultures of our society. Draw us to your truth. Help us to understand that you are the sovereign creator and sustainer of all things and ultimately the judge of all mankind. And that there is no other name under heaven whereby we can be brought back into fellowship with you forever, than the precious name of Jesus. Help us to cling to that, no matter how we feel or what others say or what pressure is laid upon us, that we might go out from this place and like Esther boldly say, not in foolishness but in confidence in our Saviour, if I perish, I perish. God has a plan for me. Father, we ask it for your glory and in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.